Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you again. And if you are a guest, let me say a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you have come to worship with us this morning. And as a guest, one thing that uh, as you stick around for a little while, you're going to get used to is I often illustrate um, or tell stories about or just give examples of when I'm uh, preaching through things, giving a message or whatnot, um, from where I grew up in uh, a little place called Pine Log, Georgia. Now, the thing that I found out this week is that some of you think that this is a mythical, unreal place. <laughs> All right. So to prove to you, and the map may not do it, but to prove to you this is a real place. It, here you go. So you've got Atlanta down here in the bottom corner. You've got Chattanooga up in the upper left. And that little red dot, that's Pine Log, Georgia. That's where it's at. All right. And if you went there, kind of what you're going to see in, in the middle of, of Pine Log is... Like, this is the heart of Pine Log right here. So this, uh, yeah, and that's going to be the point here in a second. Pine Log United, in a, in, a, in a good way, stay with me. This is Pine Log United Methodist Church, and you can see there's a tabernacle behind it, an open-air tabernacle, and around that are cabins. They, they have a camp meeting still, uh, week-long, in the middle of the summer, sawdust floors, no AC, Georgia, mm-hmm, they suffer for the Lord, and they do that. But... <laughs> The thing about it is, I mean, you can see the cemetery here as well. Um, there's a slew of steagulls buried there going back to the 1800s. Off to the left, you can't see it, is where my grandmother, um, who I call Mama Ruth, is buried. And uh, just a slew of people uh, that are connected to us buried there. Um, so it is a real place, all right? It is a real place. You're saying, why did he do that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, the reason is because I really just wanted to get a picture for a second up there of a, of a cemetery, of a church. It didn't matter if it was that one or another one. I just went that way because I'd heard y'all thought it wasn't a real place, so I thought I'd do that. But I want to have a picture of a cemetery on the screen for a minute um, because, with a church because that's... Like that's fairly common in, in older churches. If you look around, if you go and travel to an older church, a lot of times they have cemeteries surrounding them. You guys have seen this, you know, and I know you have. And if you go further back in history, if we go uh, up north, or particularly if we go over to Europe, a lot of times churches there were built on top of someone's grave, or there's catacombs underneath with tons of dead people. And if you go to like Rome and places like this, there are little bones of people scattered everywhere. And you're thinking, that's a little morbid. Well, I don't know. I, in some ways, I think the idea, particularly of a cemetery surrounding a church, might actually be healthy in a way. Because you are constantly being reminded of our mortality. That this life is short. And that there is an eternity that is to come. But like in our culture today, what we've kind of done is we've, we've kind of removed death from life. Unless we make it really hyperbolic and we talk, you know, zombie apocalypse and light of, all these things. But that's so crazy, that's so separated, like just normal aging life process. In death, we, we, we've removed that. We've, we've shoved it over to the, to the side. And so you don't walk through a cemetery to come to church. Mausoleums and things like that, they're, they're elsewhere. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to keep that in mind. And so what happens then because of that is 
when we come to a place where death pops up in our lives, whether it's the death of a loved one or you're faced with your own mortality, a lot of times we're not equipped to process that. Like, how am I to think through death? How am I to think through grief? What, what's healthy? What's not? How, how do I think about this? How do I process through this? And so you're at the funeral home all of a sudden and you're not sure how you should go through this. And so this week as I was preparing the message and we're going through this, the, this you know, series through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, uh, we came to chapter 25 and, and Samuel died. This is what it says in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. And so just kind of with all these thoughts going on, I just felt compelled to call a time out from our regular exposition through the book. And just let's just have a heart-to-heart about, like, how do you deal with death? How do you process that? How do you think through it properly? How do you grieve well? How do you not grieve well? What, what does that look like? And so that's, that's what I want to do. And I hope you'll receive this just, just from a pastor's heart wanting to help his people know how to process through this, think through this, because we don't really talk about it except at a funeral. And at a funeral, that's no time to be like, well, you're grieving improperly here. That's not the way you should. Like, that's not the time to do that. Don't ever do that. Don't ever give pointers on, like, that's not, you're just, you're just a presence at a funeral. You're a shoulder, you're a hug. That's what you are. And so, but, but now we do have this chance, preparatory-wise. So let's, let's, let's talk about that, and hopefully this will be helpful to you as you prepare for that. So what we're going to actually do, we're going to jump out of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to go to John chapter 11. This is the story of Jesus and Lazarus. And what I want to do is call your attention to a couple of key truths. There's four of them, but then I want to put those together at the end, and it'll be two really, really short sentences. And if you will hang on to those two short sentences, I think they'll be really, really helpful and profitable for you and easy to remember as you move forward and as you engage with death. So we're going to be in John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one around you. We're going to be on page 897. The book of John's in what's called the New Testament. And at the very beginning of the New Testament, you have four records of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to be in John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. So John chapter 11 We'll pick up the story in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this is Mary and Martha. Their brother is Lazarus. Lazarus has died. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, almost kind of maybe interrupting her a little bit, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like, she's got good theology. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Look back at verse 33 one more time. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is not troubled at her weeping. The, the Greek word here is eterexine, and what it means most literally is angry. Not at her. What, what, what's he angry at? Why is Jesus angry? Why is he stirred up inside? Why is he agitated? He's agitated at death. He's angry at death. And here's why, and this is the first thing I want you to write in your notes. Because death is not natural. Death is not natural. It's not supposed to be like this. This is not how God created the world. Human death did not exist in the very good beginning. And so while death may be inevitable in our lives today, it's not part of the natural order. What it is, is it is a chaotic and destructive invader that now exists ever since the first humans committed the first sin. But it is not part of the created order. But since that time when sin came into the world, death has been an ever-present enemy lurking at the gates. And so that's why Jesus, verse 33, is deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. He's ticked off at this invader of death and the pain that it causes and the ripping away that it causes. It's, he's angry because it's not natural. It's only here because of sin. Not supposed to be this way. God created us to live, not die. But we sin, so we die. Death is a result of sin. 
And it comes for all of us. And so you, you can work out, you can eat good, you can go for a run. I encourage you to do that. We should take care of our bodies. But death's still coming. It is. One box, one person. It is. And it ticks Jesus off. I remember, you know, we showed the cemetery. I remember when my grandmother died. Um, and I remember the funeral that we had. And I remember sitting there and, and saying, like, in my own mind, my own, my own thoughts, saying, like, I, I hate death. Jesus hates it more. And he came to do something about it. He came to kill death. He came to be the death of death. Because just as death was not there in the very good beginning, so death will not be there in the end of the age. Death has an expiration date. Death will one day experience its own death. It will cease to exist because of the perfect life, substitutionary death, and glorious, victorious resurrection of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying to Martha. He's saying, listen, you know about that, but I am that. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And in me, death will be defeated. And so, friends, when Jesus walked out of the grave on that very first Easter Sunday morning, death was defeated then. It was defeated then. Now, it still exists, right? It's not extinct yet. But it will be when he comes again. But the death, it has been defeated. And so there will come a day, 1 Corinthians 15, where we can say, O death, where is thy sting? Where is your victory? But until that day when Jesus returns, death does sting. And Jesus knew this full well. So I already speculated that he'd experienced his, his earthly father, Joseph's, Death, but he knew it full well right here, verse 34. And he said to them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, but don't miss the power of this short little statement. Jesus is on the verge of perhaps his greatest miracle. He knows full well everything he's about to do. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus again and he's doing it so that the people there can see his authority and his power, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. He knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's in control from the beginning to the end, but he's not callous about it. He's not detached from the pain of his friends and those he loves. He doesn't scold them for weeping he joins them in mourning. And with knowing what he's going to do, he joins them in mourning and in weeping. The reality of death and its effects on those he loved broke his heart. And so death is not natural. And since it's not natural, grief is appropriate. And so that's number two. Grief is appropriate. It's appropriate. My good friend Matt McCullough just released a book called Remember Death. Uh, and it's all about how you should keep in mind your mortality so that you might live with hope now. But in that book he writes this. Grief over death in all its many faces 
is the only honest, truthful response to a world that was not made to be this way. Grief, grief tells the truth about the goodness of what God has given us. It's how we agree with Jesus about the offensiveness of death's challenge to everything that is good and right and beautiful in this world. Grief is not unbelief about what God will do that like someday there won't be death anymore. And so grieving is not saying, I don't believe in that. And it's also not ingratitude about what God has done. Rather, what grief is in the face of death is it's honest. It's simply being honest. Grief's even Christ-like. Because Christ wept. And so friends, understand, it is right to grieve and mourn at death. That is a right feeling. That's why even in our song selection that we do in here, we sing songs of grief. We sing songs of lament. We sing songs of suffering because not everything's always perfect, happy, you know, joy. It's not the Lego movie, everything is awesome. That's, that, that's not real. So we sing songs of lament. We sing songs of suffering. We sing because Christianity is the encompassing of all of life in this fallen, broken world. And so we want to deal with life properly, not just be like, everything's happy over here. And so death hurts. It's right to grieve. It stings. It won't always. It's going to be extinct. It's going to be, you know, no more. But right now it is still here until Jesus returns. And so grieve. When death comes, it is right to grieve. That's a truthful response to the brokenness of this world. And so we grieve. But 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Praise the Lord. We, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because while like, in grief we want to be honest about life, in hope we want to be honest about Jesus as well. Because Jesus makes all the difference in the world. And so number three then, grieve with hope, right? It's appropriate to grieve, but grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. Let's jump back into our story here. Verse 21. As we grieve, think about grieving with hope. Going back to where we were a little bit earlier, just rehashing this for a minute. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Who's coming into the world. That's why we can grieve with hope. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. And he's come into this world to save us from our sin. And to defeat death. To be the death of death. 
And so in the midst of your grief, hang on to that. Jesus has defeated it. All right? He has conquered the grave. Death is on the clock. His time is almost up. And verse 24, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, notice these things. Notice how fitting this is for this situation. What he says right there. Verse 25, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That verse is for Lazarus. Verse 26, And everyone who lives, right, who's alive, and believes in me, shall never die. That verse is for Martha and me and you. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And so understand, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, unless Jesus returns before you die, yes, you will biologically die. Okay, that's going to happen. Said it before, but you know, I'm either doing your funeral or you're coming to mine. It's going to happen. But as one commentator put it, biological death doesn't disturb the continuity of living personal existence for God's people in the slightest. There will not be one millisecond where you are separated from the love of God in the midst of your death. There's, there's not going to be one, like, I don't even get small, nanosecond maybe, not no separation from God's love. It's not going to happen. We may transition from, you know, physical life and we, and we may go through the transition of physical death, but that cannot destroy the life that Christ has given to us. And so as believers, we have no need to, to fear death in that sense, though we hate it. We have no need to fear it. Christ has already been there and He's conquered it. And He will be with us the whole way through. You will never be alone. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Not even death. He will be with us the whole way through. And the moment we biologically die, our soul will immediately be with Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so, yes, in the face of death, grieve. Okay? But grieve with hope. And, and I've only hit the tip of the iceberg on why we can grieve with hope. And that's because number four is the reason. And so let's go full bore on the why now. And it's actually number four in your notes. And here's what it is. Death is temporary. Death is temporary. Let's finish John 11 and then we'll chat a little bit. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He's angry. He doesn't like death. It is an invader. It hurts people. It hurts his children. It is only here because of sin. He is, it does not like death. Then de Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Friends, this is the power of Jesus. He has authority over all things, even death. Okay, it has to obey him because he is God. He has authority over all things. And so Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. And in a crazy display of his power, at that moment, Lazarus's heart began beating again. The blood that had pooled and began to die became alive again. His nerve impulses started going. Synapses started firing again. And his flesh, four days, that had begun to rot and decompose, was whole and healed. And he stood up and he walked out of the grave again. And I love what Augustine, 4th century theologian, said about this moment. Here's what Augustine had said. Augustine said that Jesus had to say Lazarus' name because otherwise he would have emptied the entire graveyard. That's his power. And here's the reality. Someday he will. Someday he will empty the entire graveyard of the earth, of all people who have repented and trusted in Him by faith in what He's done to save their souls. And not just their souls, their whole bodies, we'll get to in a minute. And so someday He will empty the graveyard. Because Lazarus is a preview. He's a preview of our resurrection. Jesus is coming back. All right? In like to this world in power and glory. It's called the second coming or the return of Christ. And this story is a window into that glory. And so, make sure you death is a temporary deal. It will not always be around. And what death does to us, separating our soul from our bodies, will not always be the case either. This is temporary. There's coming a day when those things end. They will cease to exist. And that day is when Jesus comes again. So, let me kind of pull out for a minute and just put all of this. I'm going to do two things now. I'm going to put this all just in the framework of like eternity, timeline, okay? The meta narrative of the Bible, the great big overarching story of the Bible. I'm going to do that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about just heaven for a minute, okay? So putting, as, as we think about, okay, death and, and, and bodies, let me just give you the full story for a minute. And you know it. If you've been here for any length of time, you can think of the Bible as four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So in the beginning, God made everything, and it was wonderful, and it was great, and it was perfect. Man rebelled against that, rebelled against God's good rule, and in that rebellion, in that sin, they fractured very good creation. Didn't destroy it entirely, but fractured it. Everything was broken, and so... Sin came into the world. Disease came into the world. Greed and poverty and natural disasters and corruption and racism and murder. And all all of this came into the world. And death. That's when death came into the world. Creation. 
All right? And then you have the fall. That's what I just talked about. Then pretty much the whole rest of the Bible, pretty much the whole rest of existence is redemption. It is how God is working out things to redeem all things to himself through Christ. And so if you are not a believer in here, you're new to Christianity, just kind of thinking about Christianity, make sure you understand that what the Bible teaches is that we are not saved by living a good life or doing good things. Our only hope at being forgiven and having, being able to stand blameless before the God of the universe is to have someone who does that for us because we fail. And that someone is Jesus. He came and lived a perfect life that we didn't. Then he died the death that we have been condemned to die for our sin. And then he rose again in victory, you know, over sin and death. And so our only hope at being made right with the God of the universe is on the basis of what Jesus did, not on the basis of what we do. So the whole Bible is just kind of laying out that story of Jesus and the redemption he's coming. So you've got creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and then the final act, which is really just going back to the beginning, is restoration. And this is making everything that's gone wrong right again. And there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrows. Our tears will be wiped away. Our souls and our bodies will be put back together. This is Revelation 21. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the big narrative of like, what, what eternity is about. That's what the Bible is about, what life is about, what reality is about. That's the big story. Now let me just kind of teach for a minute about heaven. Because the story of the Bible is not so much beginning, middle, end, but beginning, middle, new beginning. A, a restoration of, of Eden. The, a paradise, Edenic state, no sin. Complete fellowship with God. But let's just talk about heaven for a minute. <clears throat> heaven is not the bleached antiseptic, hyper-spiritual place that some Christians expect as their eternal home, nor is it simply an everlasting family reunion complete with calorie-free food and superpowers as some people hope for. That's not heaven. Rather, heaven in its fullness, hang on to that, in its fullness is a restoration of God's original creation. And that's coming, but it's not here yet. It doesn't come until Jesus returns. And so when we die right now, talking about heaven, when we die right now, we don't hop into a spiritual DeLorean and, you know, adjust the flux capacitor and jump forward to that ultimate, like, time. We don't, that doesn't happen. Nor do you go into the grave in some sort of spiritual grizzly bear hibernation and just sleep until that day. That doesn't happen either. The Bible says... Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the moment you die, you're absent from the body. That means your body's not going. Your soul goes to heaven and is with Jesus. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But make sure you understand that verse. Absent from the body. So the body's not there. Just your soul. So if I drop dead today and, and, and I die, my soul is going to go to heaven and my body is going to go in the ground. But just my soul will be there. 
Because that's what death does. It separates body and soul. It's divisive. And so think, think about this. Just I mean, think about this. What makes you a human? When God created humanity, He created us with a body and with a soul. Both of those. It takes both of those to be human. And God put just as much intentionality in the body as He did the soul. And so to think as if like the soul's more important, or the soul's the real you, and the body's just a shell, that's actually Gnostic. That's not Christian. That's a Gnostic thought, where the immaterial is more important than the material. That's a Gnostic thought. No, as Christians, physical has a good thing. Physical is a good thing. It's not an evil thing. And so, body and soul, that's what it takes to be a human. And that's how God made you. And that's why death is such an enemy. It rends those two things apart. It's basically trying to uncreate us. God created us body and soul. Death is trying to uncreate us. And so as you think about this soul and this body and heaven and whatnot, let me just maybe put it practical. I've told you, I think I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it to you again because it makes the same point. Uh, I talked about, we'll just have grand, grandparent day. John talked about his grandmother when he was praying, or his grandfather. I talked about my grandmother. Now I'm going to talk about my grandfather, grandparent day. My papa, that's my mom's dad, uh, was an amazing guy. Uh, he was a cook on a ship at the end of World War II, um, was an amazing athlete, grew up absolutely dirt poor, and had a scholarship to play baseball for the University of Tennessee, because uh, he grew up in Chattanooga, and, uh, but wound up getting married at like, I don't know, 17, and um, played semi-pro ball. Thought that, you know, do, do enough to, to make it that way. Uh, that didn't work out, obviously. So semi-pro ball never goes well. So he, uh, you know, had to get a job. And what he did is he went and got a job there in um, Chattanooga, uh, and they were living in a one-room house with basically a Bunsen burner to cook their food on, absolute dirt poor, and he began shoveling cotton byproducts, cellulose, um, all day long, shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. Through grit and hard work and determination, Years later, he became the president of this company and sold it in 1989 and retired. Amazing story. Um, but he had diabetes. And so he retired, and two years later, he had to have his legs amputated. And so this amazing athlete, ridiculous golfer, now didn't have legs. And a couple years later after that, he... He, he died and passed away. And so when he died and passed away, because of his faith in Christ, his soul went to heaven. But his body's in the ground. Now, it's wonderful because he's with the Lord. That is a great thing. Heaven is an amazing place right now. But it's not the fullness of everything. That's still to come when Jesus returns. So it would actually be biblically inaccurate for me to say, Papa's got his legs again. Because to quote Forrest Gump, he ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> right? 
because he doesn't have a body. Just his soul is there. His body's in the ground. For now. But Jesus will return, and when he does, that changes everything. That's when the fullness of heaven comes. That's the restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So in that moment, no more sin, no more sorrow. Our bodies and souls are put back together. There's no pain. There's no death. The earth is renewed. And that's when come out and all the cemeteries empty out. And bodies and souls are put back together. And we were made back into the image bearers we were created to be in the very good beginning, body and soul. And so as we're contemplating death, as we're thinking about death, it's important to keep the reality of these things in mind because if all your mind conjures up as you think about the world to come are just golden streets and celestial shores and chubby baby angels with harps, that's going to remain a distant and abstract, depersonalized idea. But when we see the truth and we view this coming restoration as the opposite of death, the inverse of death, that becomes something we can latch on to. That becomes something we can hold on to. And it is the truth. It's a world that we can long for. And so now we can grieve with hope because death is temporary. And when Jesus returns again, he's effectually saying, not just Lazarus come out, but everybody come out. And everybody will. And so putting all this together then, as you think about death, here's the things I want you to take away. Let's put those four points into sentences. Two short sentences. If you'll keep these in mind, It will help you grieve right, process right as you look at death. First sentence, death is not natural, so grief is appropriate. Death is not natural, so grief is appropriate. Second sentence, but we grieve with hope because death is temporary. Death is not natural, so grief is appropriate. But we grieve with hope because death is temporary.
and it's temporary because there's soon coming a day when the craziness of this world will be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky and a joyful voice with a distinctly northern Galilean accent will call from heaven. And that's when life gets really, really fun. So let's pray. Father, praise you that you are good, you are glorious, you are all-powerful, you are sovereign over all things, and you're kind. You are kind. You are good to your people. You are good to redeem the world. You are good to take care of us. You are good to bring salvation to sinners like each one of us who does not deserve salvation, does not deserve eternal life in heaven, but deserves eternal death in hell. And so we praise you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I just pray for men and women and boys and girls here. Lord, we all face death. We all deal with death. And if we haven't, we will. I pray, Father, you would help sink these truths into our minds so that we might process rightly, that we would understand that death, though is inevitable, it's not natural. And so we should grieve. But our grief should be with hope because death is temporary. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.